0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Dell Technologies. When it comes to your business, we'll stop at nothing. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
1: Slack CEO, Stuart Butterfield, and Box CEO, Aaron Levy, join the Post for a deep dive into the expanding world of cloud computing for the new workforce and the new normal.
2: Let's listen. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Fowler, technology columnist here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to examine the critical and growing role of cloud computing in digital transformation. In a bit, I'll be talking with the CEO of Box, Aaron Levy, but my first guest is the CEO and co-founder of Slack, Stuart Butterfield. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Well, so five years or so ago, we met and I told you that I didn't want to use Slack because I didn't need one more channel of work, of, of work information in my life coming my way all day long. Today, I've got Slack open at least 10 hours a day on my phone and on my computer, and I'm answering Slacks all day long. So what has cloud-based messaging done to how we work? Is there such a thing as too much Slack?
0: Um, I think there can be too much, there is such a thing as too much slack and there can be, um, you know, you you adopt any technology that makes you in some sense more powerful, you know, gives you you leverage. Um, there's always the possibility of, um, going overboard, let's say. I mean, you look at the early days of the industrial revolution and the Thames and the Charles River What? Periodically, just catch on fire, you know. But over time, we learned how to adopt those technologies. Our com team hates it when I use this analogy, by the way. But um, with with Slack, I think it does create an enormous amount more transparency. And the distinction is really around the creation of channels, because in most messaging systems and an email, you direct the message to one or more individuals. With Slack, you create a channel, and this is in the best case, of course, for everything that's happening across the company. And that could be every customer, every project, initiative, every team, every office location, every business unit. And once you have that, everyone knows where to go to give their update or uh, get caught up on something or to ask their question. And that can be really transformative. And I think that... um, it can generate a lot of enthusiasm. It can create a lot of channels. It can create a lot of activity. And uh, over time, teams tend to figure out how to wield that new power um, in a way that gives them the benefits without it feeling overwhelming. And uh, you know, part of that, I think, is is. Uh, you know, just a factor of our design decisions as the creators of the product. Um, and part of it is like a cultural transformation that happens inside the organization where people stop thinking of a message as something that requires an immediate response unless the message actually says it requires an immediate response and more of a way to have the same conversation you might have on a phone call or a video conference or an in-person meeting, um, but asynchronously kind of split, you know, spread out over time, which is, uh, Good for a couple of reasons, but mostly because it gives people additional flexibility. We don't have to be doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, but it, I think it also really makes a difference uh, for, for some people to have more time to prepare their thought and to, to you know, think through the consequences before speaking up.
2: Sure. I hear that at Slack, you have one day a month where people don't use Slack. It's your fry yay Is that right? Uh, what are you doing? to? Is that something more companies should adopt? Uh, I think there's
0: a there's a little misconception there. It's uh, a day off every uh, one one Friday a month, so people probably don't slack. Awesome. Awesome. They also, yeah, they're just not at work. Um, but no, it's we're very obviously very sophisticated users of our own software, um, and so the. Things that happen in Slack every day, I think, get more attention and, and love from our product team and our customer experience team. And, you know, there's a more, uh, a greater sense of urgency to, to address them. But we're also, like I said, very sophisticated users and people who teams who are, who are brand new to Slack, I think do require some, you know, a, adjustments to, uh, the, the style w- that they use to communicate because you think about it, like I say, a 10,000 person company. The single individual who gets the most access to the emails that are sent across the company probably has, you know, one, two, or maybe three one hundredths of one percent of all the communication. But uh, what's typical for Slack using organizations of 10,000 people is about 10 to 15 percent of the messages are in what we call public channels. So they're not fully public. They're. Public within your your organization or your team, that's many orders of magnitude. It's like a thousand times more access. And obviously, if you try to keep up with all of that, it's impossible. But if you think of that as a resource, you know, like I don't need to read every web page on the internet, but I'm really glad that I have Google. Um, it can be really powerful, especially when you consider the difference between someone starting at an organization where the primary means of communication is email. And there might've been hundreds of millions or even billions of messages exchanged before they got there, but they're cut off from that whole history. They have no access to it. Whereas you join an organization that's using Slack and you can scroll back over the last couple of weeks of your team's you know, important conversations. You can search this whole history. You have this incredible access. And I think it really makes um, you know, the ramp time or the onboarding time much, much shorter.
2: Yeah. In many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a test of Silicon Valley's pipe dreams, including using the cloud to distribute workers. Um, mm-hmm. it likely, we wouldn't have been able to work remotely without the cloud, um, at least if you have a, a white-collar job. So, what have we learned from the pandemic about working from home? What tech has worked? What hasn't? And what do you think's likely here to stay?
0: I would say most things have probably worked. I mean, maybe I'm just not thinking of of the things that, um, you know, methods are, that have been adopted and discarded. But the really interesting thing to me is um, we never thought of Slack as specifically a remote work company or a distributed work company. Uh, I don't think we had this distinction earlier, but um, after the pandemic started, our VP of customer experience, a woman named Allie Rail, who has been at the company for a really long time, kind of got seconded into this extra role to figure out how can we work most effectively in this new environment? And one of the first things she said was 500 Howard Street, which is our address at HQ in in San Francisco, 500 Howard Street is no longer our headquarters. Slack is our headquarters. And I think that's, that's a really powerful distinction. But the thing I think is really interesting is if you asked me you know, in February of this year, um, I would answer like most CEOs, I don't think uh, we would be able to get the whole company to work remotely or work from home um, inside of a week and maintain the same levels of productivity. And we did. So sometimes when something is necessary, um, what seems impossible is possible, and if that's true, you know what other assumptions, what other kind of um, practices or processes are we kind of blindly uh, keeping in the rotation when uh, perhaps there are more effective ways to do that? and I, my personally, my big one right now is trying to replace as many synchronous processes or mostly meetings with asynchronous alternatives, because I think that makes a real difference, the degree of flexibility, especially right now with people having extra childcare duties and and a bunch of other inconveniences, that flexibility is really appreciated. But I think it also forces a little bit more discipline around the ways in which people communicate if they don't have the benefit of uh, live talking back and forth. And we have all had enough live talking back and forth over video calls to last yeah a lot, a
2: long, long so, time. so do you think remote work has made us more or less productive I think more productive, but there's a there's an interesting question
0: um, I don't know the extent to which we're kind of burning down uh, accumulated social capital you know that, that was built up over the period before this all started. And what I mean by that you know we've now uh 20, somewhere between 20 and 25% of our employees started post pandemic, which means they didn't get flown to headquarters for the week long onboarding thing. They didn't make all these casual acquaintances. They didn't chat with people in the elevator on the way up. They didn't, you know, um, maybe go for a bite to eat after the all hands meeting with some of their colleagues. And what that means is they still have the same strong relationships, you know, with their manager or their direct reports or the immediate members of their team, but they miss a lot of the weak social ties. And I think those are really important for holding the whole organization together. You know, that people know people in remote teams, um, they know who to go ask a question. They kind of like knits the whole thing together. So there is a bit of concern that while we have been, you know, equally as productive, in some cases more, in some cases maybe a little bit less. Um, We're kind of uh tapping the well a little bit too hard
2: right what's going to happen in uh, a year from now or two years from now will working from home become more of a right than a perk do you think in american business Uh, i know several uh, companies also have said that they're planning to leave silicon valley and move to texas um uh are you moving to texas and what do you think about the people that say they are
0: no plans to move to Texas. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's um, if you can work from wherever you want, it doesn't have to be home. Right. And I think we envision a future where our offices are pretty radically reconfigured. We started an organization called Future Forum to look into new ways of working and kind of future of work more broadly. But one of the first pieces of research it did was a global survey. Um, how many people want to or expect to go back to the office full time in the way that they used to? And it was twelve percent want to. Um, the alternative isn't everyone works from home all the time. The alternatives are there's a lot of flexibility because think about the Bay Area is a good example, of this it applies to many, many different areas. A lot of people would like to move, you know, maybe, further north or further south out to Sacramento or something like that, because for the same price as their house in San Francisco, they could have a much larger one with a yard and their kids wouldn't be all cooped up. And they're not going to do that if they have to commute every day. So no one can do a two and a half hour or very few people can tolerate if they have a choice, a two and a half hour commute each way. Um, in this environment though, people are making those decisions. They are, they are moving or they want to be closer to their family or they want to be somewhere where they can see them a river, or a lake, or a mountain, or something like that. It's going to be difficult to force all those people to come back. But if we find the right kind of balance, um, and provide the right facilities um, and alternatives, I think we can create something that that captures the best of both worlds. It captures that flexibility. It allows people to have a little bit more uh, time with their family, if that's what they want. Um, Cuts down on the commutes but still allows people to get together periodically. That might be, you know, once a week or once every other week or even just once a quarter, because there is something about uh, being together in person that I think is really important and significant, but it doesn't have to be every day. You know, it's, uh, I'll put it this way. Our offices um, pre-pandemic were about 65% occupied on any given day. So that means some people are out sick, some people are traveling for work, some people are on vacation or whatever, Uh, now we think about for the number of employees we have in a city, it might be targeting more like 20% um, Mm. because I think a much smaller number of people will be in the office every day. And it also reconfigures the shape of it. But uh, now is the time that I would actually invest in WeWork if I could, because I I think that the flexibility to go to co-working spaces, because a lot of people want to work remotely in a different city where their company may not have an office, but they don't want to work at home. You know, they want to they have some work-life separation or they don't want to you know, dedicate enough space in their house to create a, a really great working environment. So I think co-working spaces and, um, and other kind of alternatives to establish offices are going to let people live in a greater variety of cities uh, and still have you know, the office-like um, environment that they want from time to time.
2: Mm. Another thing that's happened in 2020 is that Slack has become kind of the ground zero for political activism um, in many companies. Um, is that a help or a hindrance to business, in your view? I mean, do you get calls from CEO, client CEOs saying, what are you doing to us? Do you allow Slack employees to uh, protest things going on at Slack using Slack? Um, I, I think the answer is
0: yes, although we don't have that much of that um, I think we went through some growing pains years ago as people, again, kind of figured out how to use the tools effectively. Um, that definitely exists, but, you know, the, I think about some of the companies that have been most affected, uh, and Google, I think, is the one that really stands out, are not Slack customers. There are pockets of Alphabet that, that are Slack customers, but Google proper is not. Um, so I don't think there's anything specific about Slack. I think there's something... About uh, an environment where digital communication is kind of free and easy and infinitely replicable. Uh, And then there's this incredible stressor, anxiety producing worldwide global pandemic and economic collapse, and also the um, kind of bringing to the fore the the kinds of interactions that many communities have with police in in America and the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and the counter protests and then this bonkers election on top of it, uh, that's going to come out one way or the other.
2: Right. So um, we have just a few minutes left and I want to make sure I, of course, talk about the big news of the last month, which is Slack being acquired by Salesforce. Um, and I want to put that in a, in, a, in a context. There's been a lot of conversation about the impact of monopolies and antitrust on tech. and I want to ask, could Slack have survived on its own without being acquired, or do medium sized tech companies need courts and regulators to help them?
0: No, I mean, so there's all kinds of of uh, companies around the same size as us that I think are are thriving, and um I'm not sure I totally agreed with the editorial positioning at the at the beginning of this um, uh, the, the interview because we are a company that launched uh, let's see not quite seven years ago so it's like six and a half years ago and are at around a billion dollar run rate for revenue and we're growing incredibly quickly we added. Uh, 12,000 net new paid customers last quarter compared to 5,000 the year before, so 140% growth. And you look around, there's I think a, a, a misconception that Slack has, hasn't been successfully in the enterprise. The largest government contractor in the United States is wall-to-wall on Slack. The uh, number one retailer, wall-to-wall on Slack. The number one in apparel, wall-to-wall on Slack. The company's, uh, country's largest issuer of credit cards, wall-to-wall on Slack. And stepping a little bit further out, you know, we have customers like the Veterans Affairs Administration, operators of the largest integrated healthcare system in the U.S. This, that's enterprise. Um, so I think we would have been fine on our own. I mean, we were we were fine and we were very successful. I think there is the opportunity for something that's a, a really unique combination here that uh, this might sound silly, but that what Brett Taylor and I would call one plus one equals seven. We were looking for really a nonlinear impact. And it's not just We have some software they got a lot of sales people and so we're going to sell more of our software that there's a real opportunity to shift the way that people work
2: right but slack has argued in an antitrust suit against microsoft in europe that its bundling of teams and office is anti-competitive are you planning to file any further legal action against microsoft
0: No, that's working its way through the through the system um And it's just something that happens in the normal course of business. You can look at Google and Oracle going at each other back and forth. Uh, AWS is clearly number one in cloud and still made a complaint about the um, Defense Department's Jedi contract going to Microsoft and and litigated that. Uh, It would be foolish, I think, and and kind of a a breach of our fiduciary duty to shareholders to um, kind of just sit back and let anti-competitive illegal uh, bundling behavior happen and not complain about it. Because you know, what's the point of having regulations if they don't, get, uh, they don't get enforced? And I think over the long run, it's not a fast process, but over the long run, uh, w- the European Commission will find in our favor and uh,
2: we'll see how that works out. Just, just about a minute left for our conversation, but I wanted to ask, has big tech become too big in your view? How do you see the this, the antitrust concerns uh, playing out over the next year?
0: I So I honestly don't know. And this is not trying to like deflect the answer. It's um, the unintended consequences that we've seen of some of the regulations so far. And I should say on the whole, I'm pro-regulation. Like It's great that I didn't eat as much lead paint when I was a kid and the cars have seat belts and all that stuff. Um, But I think we have seen a lot of unintended consequences uh, of some of the privacy laws that I think actually reinforce the strength of the monopolies. And it's just a dynamic environment that these companies came out of nowhere. And it's not really a case of easy come, easy go, but uh, really large competitors can emerge very quickly and shift the landscape. And I think that will continue to happen. Um, It's difficult, you know, sometimes like this, it's kind of hard to see how the Google, Facebook, hegemony over digital advertising disappears. But I also expect it's gonna happen. One of my pastimes, I guess, is to look back through that excellent Wikipedia history of the components of the Dow and look back to 100 years ago when it was like US leather, um, a bunch of copper companies, uh, American Rubber Corporation. Um, doesn't take long for that stuff to roll
2: over. Right. Stuart Butterfield, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, great to see you. Thank you.
2: Um, I'll be back in just a moment with Aaron. I'd like to bring in our next guest now. He is Aaron Levy, the co founder, chairman, and CEO of Box, a cloud cloud storage company. Welcome, Welcome Aaron. Hey, uh, good to be here. Glad to have you. So, I think you said in the past that the past decade has been about building the tools for the future of work. And I believe you said the next decade is when the majority of the world adopts them. So, how far along has the pandemic moved us, and what is the potential that lies ahead?
1: Yeah, actually, I think, um, uh, you know, when you when you just look at the, the raw math of it, uh, we are still rem- uh, as remarkable and um, counterintuitive as this is, uh, we're still in the very early phases of the cloud rolling out to large enterprises globally and powering this idea of a, of a new way of working. And when you look at um, even in the middle of the pandemic, um, when you look at just the the number of uh, people that that have uh, adopted these technologies, it's enormous. But um, first of all, we're adopting these technologies in some cases under duress for very kind of mission critical, urgent use cases. But we haven't, you know, fully transformed the way that we work on an ongoing basis. And obviously, Stuart was just talking about kind of what does that future look like um, in a in a post pandemic world, and and what is that future way of working going to look like? And I think. We're still in the earliest of phases of of really reimagining what work actually looks like when it's fully in the cloud, when people can communicate both synchronously and asynchronously a, across their entire enterprise. Um, so I, I think that we've pulled forward that uh, uh, that that acceleration of, of digital, as it were, um, by many many years. But I think we're actually going to look back um, and see that that we were still very early in this this overall journey. And when you look at even the total number of users of products like Box or or Slack or Microsoft Teams, um, you know, we're still in, uh, you know, the minority of the world's knowledge workers or digital workers that are using these technologies to do their jobs. So I think really the, you know, the the past decade was when we were building these products, when when these companies were were really, you know, kind of coming to life, and now I think we're seeing a, a, a the next phase, which is when they actually get adopted, and we start to see how business changes because of them.
2: So, what have we learned from the pandemic? Are there specific things that uh, you feel you've discovered, or we've discovered, you know, as a working population? Do work about remote working using the cloud, and what do you think is here to stay that we we we've, we've used during the pandemic?
1: Well, I think um, I think when you look at how we work, uh, you know, again today during this this more kind of crisis-oriented way that that we're working of of uh, uh, you know dealing with social distancing and and the, the pandemic um it is it is some approximation to this idea of of remote work and and working virtually obviously there's a lot of other factors that um uh, that that have distorted that uh to to some degree but when you look at how we work today whether it's a slack channel with you know a hundred of our colleagues working on an important project or it's zoom calls that bring together people all throughout the business um that uh, that we need to make a decision with or if it's real-time collaboration with content on box um, across you know multiple stakeholders those ways of working um, don't really get defined by the traditional hierarchical, uh, you know, approach to, to how business has has you know been operated and, and the, the sort of management science of of the 20th uh, century. And so, if you think about, you know, for for about 100 years, companies got built all in the same way. You had hierarchies and hierarchies of people. You put them in large buildings. Um, the flow of information was very analog and very slow. So you make a decision, and it has to cascade through multiple layers uh, of uh, of decision makers um, and, uh, and and people that are going to share that information. Literally, most companies have this have literally this, this idea of cascading information, um, where the the implication is is that it's going to go through layers and layers of management or go up. Uh, to, to management through through multiple stages. And what what this idea of remote work and uh, certainly working in, with virtual technologies has blown up uh, is that that doesn't make any sense in the 21st century. Um, the speed of business is only accelerating. People need to be able to ship products faster. We need to be able to serve our customers more seamlessly. We don't have time for all of those more typical slower ways of of operating. And so I think in the 21st century, it, it makes sense that uh, that anybody in your business should be able to contribute to any idea that that's going on. If they have a if they have a better idea or if they have a way to, to contribute to that project, um, and uh, and and you should be able to move much faster um, when you're no longer bound by the the traditional sort of uh, physical limits of, of a business. You know, how many people can fit in that conference room? How many people can we get together, um, you know, physically to work on that project? How 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 constrained are we? Um, when we're moving an idea forward. And so I think what we're seeing in this new virtual way of working is that, um, is that you can work across the enterprise, organizations can operate in a much flatter way, you can move much faster because decisions can either be made more quickly or the execution of those decisions um, uh, end up being much, much swifter uh, as uh, as information can travel much faster. And so some of it is being you know sort of discovered because of remote work, but, but that's really just the, the sort of necessary ingredient right now that, that's catalyzing this. Um, you, could, you could still do all of these same ways of working inside of an office, uh, which is why I think the, the future is really one that's going to be hybrid. Some people will come into an office to do this way of working. Some people will work remotely, um, but, uh, but there's certainly no going back uh, to the, the more kind of legacy analog ways that, that we've been working in the past.
2: Yeah, Aaron. My my next question was going to be: Do we still need offices after the pandemic? And are you moving to Texas like everybody else? Apparently.
1: <laughs> um, I, you know, I actually prefer Larry Ellison's approach a little bit more. Um, so I think when you can uh, when you can work on an island that you own, um, that seems uh, a little bit more fun. But um, uh, no, no plans to move. We're uh, we're we're going to definitely stick it out here in Silicon Valley and make sure that uh, that we can be the contrarians. But but um, I think what's... What, what this is proving, and, and certainly the companies that are moving to Texas or individuals that are moving all throughout the country, is that you can work remotely. You can work in a distributed way. Um, and I think it's it's probably going to be more uh, of a preference by individual and by organization and, and kind of style of culture. Um, you know, for, for, for Box, um, we're still going to invest in our kind of office hubs. Um, where we think there's gonna be a lot of power of people coming together and working well together uh, in person. But that being said, we're gonna also see a, 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 you know I think a healthy increase of employees that are working remotely um, that can work on any device in any location they choose. Uh, and we're gonna make sure that we have a flexible work environment for for both parts of that that population because again, so much of it, you know can be personal. Where are you at in your stage of life with with family? what What is your style of working? Do you like to work in in person in real time with those? Um, that, uh, that 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 you're working with on a project, or do you like to um, be able to kind of step back and and um, and and contribute, you know after after you have a little bit more thought on uh, on whatever the problem is? Um, and so I think we want to be able to adapt to the multiple work styles of of employees that uh, certainly a box, and I think we're gonna see that for most of our, uh, our our customers as well. We have um, about hundred thousand customers and we're in about seventy percent of the fortune five hundred. so we we have a I think a pretty decent pulse of what you know, large companies are dealing with uh, across a range of industries. And for the most part, we see that um, that most companies are going to have much more of a a flexible model as opposed to kind of be on any one end of the uh, of of these sort of poles.
2: Right. So I want to dive into Box's business just a little bit. You guys provide cloud storage, uh, but now that everybody kind of has cloud storage as part of their office service, what distinguishes Box? How does Box survive against Microsoft or Google without word processing, email, messaging, and all these other bundled-in services?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, first of all, uh, from a storage standpoint, um, I, I would say that's a pure commodity that that you know we ride on top of, and every day uh, we, we just thank God that that uh, storage innovation is alive and well in the world. Uh, every time that that you have more uh, storage uh, technology. Uh, that makes you know storage, you know more and more dense, cheaper, um, more power efficient. That means that the world can create more data and have it, you know, stored and accessible from anywhere. So, so we we are powered by storage technology on our back end. What we actually do is is really build the software that helps companies manage, secure, govern, and build the workflows around their their content. So you can almost think about us as a, a content cloud. Uh, where we manage the end-to-end life cycle of a company's most important content or information. So, if you're a bank, think about all the the, uh, the contracts and records that you have to have about clients. If you're a um, a uh, life sciences company, you have to be able to do clinical drug trials in a very, very regulated and controlled way. Through the federal government, you want to be able to collaborate with um, you know across agencies and with um, uh, with uh, with private entities as well on on mission critical projects. Whether you're NASA. Um, or, uh, or the defense department. So what we do is we build software that helps companies manage and secure that information as they collaborate or on it across uh, all the different applications that you're using. So we have a really significant partnership with Slack where we enable companies to be able to communicate inside of Slack but leverage content that's stored in Box to be able to do that securely. Same thing we work with Microsoft and um, uh, and their offering so you can have content that gets managed inside of Box and then accessed and shared inside of Microsoft's application. So our job is really just to be the layer that manages the data, secures the information, um, and, uh, and 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 ensures that you can drive value on top of that by working in any application that, uh, that you have.
2: So Stuart and I were also talking about antitrust and all of the conversation about monopolies and uh, the impact they're having on the tech industry. So can Box survive on its own without being acquired by some bigger company? Or do you think you're gonna need courts and regulators to help you
1: um, well I think uh, I think de- definitely yes um, uh, on the first part and then on the second part about kind of courts and regulators I think it's a it's a really interesting question um, and uh, uh, around what does the future of internet regulation look like and right now most of the conversation is happening within the consumer space and it's mostly targeting either social media and what does the the kind of future of you know, I hate to use this word, but censorship, or or you know, who who can use these you know channels, um, and what 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 information do you need to remove or or modify or or, or kind of warn people about? So that's that's one uh, category, uh, which is which is sort of internet and social media regulation. You obviously have marketplaces. So um, how do you regulate dominant marketplaces that really kind of control uh, either the products that we look at or the the, uh, the information that we see, and, and what does that regulation need to look like? And I think what, what, um, uh, what we haven't yet seen is actually, I, I think, eventually going to be one of the biggest areas of regulation, which is what do you need from a cloud regulation in the future? And, um, and what are the rules of the road of cloud computing? Uh, and I, I would bet that in five or 10 years, um, once the government starts to, to sort of realize that there's only really kind of three or four major public cloud providers in the world, in particular, in the U.S., China China has some some good um, some good alternatives. But in the U.S., three to four major public clouds um, are there going to need to be almost net neutrality like regulations, um, you know, for those uh, types of platforms. And uh, and I think we might see a new era of what does internet regulation look like now. Right now, when we talk about these things, there's this really big hammer, which is which is sort of you know breaking up companies. And I think that's just sort of where our minds go to because obviously that's where a lot of precedent has been set. Um, and antitrust, but uh, but I, I don't necessarily think breaking up the uh, th- these companies is the solution as much as um, really having either guardrails or frameworks uh, where the 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 government uh, and industry agree that these are going to be the rules of the road uh, for how we want to protect access to information, um, uh, ensuring that there's no one company that can have too much control of all of the applications and data um, that, uh, that that we have. Um that that is both uh, a I think a risk to you know to consumer privacy and protecting consumers. I think it's also a risk to innovation and competition. Uh, and I think we're gonna need to see what is a new era of of uh, of of effectively rules and um, uh, and and uh, regulation look like in this.
2: So, if you don't think the solution is breaking up uh, big companies, um, what would you set the agenda as if you were in charge of Congress? what What laws does America need that that would help um, innovation and, and help protect consumers?
1: well I, I, uh, this is all personal opinion, so uh, I'm sure that, that the the antitrust experts on th- this video are um, are you know probably boiling right now. Um, but uh, but I, I would just say that most of the problems that, that I perceive that we're dealing with are um, are not really driven because uh, sim- simply because uh, one company owns multiple products uh, across an ecosystem of spaces, um, but but I think that right now what we're what we're all collectively realizing is is these big technology companies do have a very large role to play in our lives uh, about the information that we see, the media that we consume, the applications that we use, um, and that that's that's important. And it happens to be that these companies are worth a lot of money—a trillion or two trillion dollars. So so it's it's obviously very. Um, uh, it, it's an ex- it's sort of an exciting and very enter- energizing topic because of how big the companies are on a market cap basis. But I don't think a lot of their power is derived uh, simply from the fact that they own, you know, maybe multiple products in a category or, uh, or, or span multiple categories. I think that's that's really just kind of capitalism that, that causes, you know, these companies to get bigger and bigger. I think the actual issues that we care about are things like, okay, if, uh, if I do a search uh, what kind of products should be able to be, you know, shown on that search result page? And, and how do you how do you deal with the, the sort of fairness of that algorithm? Um, if I have my data stuck in one platform, uh, are there laws that ensure that I can uh, have portability of that data from one platform to another platform? So there's no risk that one single platform can effectively lock in my data um, just because they, they want to be able to control, um, you know, me as a user. And so I think it's, it's probably more the case that we need some standardization across these platforms of how they operate and how they work with each other. Um, you know, one great example, and actually, um, uh, this, is, this is something that I heard Bill Gates talking about, who um, obviously famously had to deal with, with antitrust, um, uh, you know, very directly. And, and he was more likening the kind of regulation we should see in the cloud or in the internet to what we expect from banks or, or telcos, where if I want to change my phone number between uh, one telco provider to another, the law sort of mandates that that has to happen. Uh, if I want to move a bank account, the law requires that I have to be able to, to move that bank account. And if you go to certain countries, that can be a one-click button. Um, and 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 sort of the law is sort of guaranteeing that that you have that type of portability and interoperability. I think what's happening right now is we're still trying to figure out what versions of those types of laws do we need for the Internet age. And where do you where do you sort of very surgically apply these new types of, of rules uh, of the road for the internet? And I think that that sort of breaking up companies is a is again it, it feels like a, a you know great solution because it can go after the sort of sheer size of these companies. But I think that's more of a coincidence of of just the the how how important the internet is um, to our lives these days, and not really the driving factor of um, of, of of where where would you want to create fairness. Uh, and openness in uh, in these big companies and, uh, and to allow for more competition and choice.
2: Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the economy as well. I know that's a topic you think deeply about. Uh, some of Silicon Valley's recent big wins, and I'm thinking like the DoorDash IPO and Airbnb, uh, what do they tell us about the future of the economy and the future of work? Because it seems like at those particular companies, most of the workers are kind of at the bottom part of that K-curve, while the companies are at the top. Who, who's winning and who's who's losing in, 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 with digital transformation?
1: Uh, re- really important topic. And um, uh, and I think we are still in the early days of trying to figure out, you know, again, and I would put this in the kind of regulation category, you know, how, how should we... Um, make sure that we have systems that, that take care of workers uh you know across all all ecosystems um, and um, and whether those are gig workers or, uh, or or whatnot you know how do you provide health care how do you provide um, you know minimum income levels for for those working on these platforms i think um i, I think there's a, a lot of work to be done to ensure that 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 you know these are not Creators of of inequality or or um, or accelerators of inequality, but instead, uh, really creators of more opportunities. So people have more choice of how they can get an income. Um, and uh, and I think that you know this this is a, a I think a uh, this is a big uh, and important topic because I think you can find I think you can very reasonably see two sides of this, uh, which is what makes it so hard. I think you have a lot of participants in the gig economy that actually say, "Hey, I really like these apps as just extra additional income." Um, I don't want them to be over-regulated because I I don't want to be a full-time employee or I I want to be able to have this type of choice and I want to be able to hop between different ways of generating income. On the other side, um, these companies uh, and these platforms can become so powerful that they can wipe out alternatives of of income sources, in which case then that those uh, over the long run, uh, the the workers on these platforms might not have other choices. And so then the the platforms become too too dominant. Um, and effectively are controlling um the uh the, the types of uh, jobs that are available and so um so i think this is an area for for you know definitely the government to uh to, to be collaborating with with the private sector to figure out you know what do we do to protect the workers on these platforms what do we do to ensure that um uh that that people can make a a fair wage um and uh and ensure that that you know the the, whether it's healthcare or other basic needs are are um, either provided by by these companies or by uh, you know uh, other structures. But uh, no matter what, um, I think the the challenge is we're still in the early innings of many of these industries, which means that we don't quite know you know what what rule do you create that doesn't lead to a lot of other downstream negative consequences that prevent innovation. Um, at the same time, how do you protect uh, the uh, the workers on these platforms? And uh, and I think that that threading that needle is. Um, is, can always be tricky, but I think it's an important uh, tackle to go, uh, problem to go tackle.
2: Aaron, I'm afraid we're out of time, but certainly a lot more to talk about on that front. Um, I really want to thank you for your time this morning, Aaron Levy, and thanks also to everybody who's been watching us online. Please stay tuned at 1.30 p.m. Eastern today when my colleague David Ignatius will discuss vaccine efforts uh, to combat COVID-19 with the CEO of Eli Lilly, David Ricks. Um, You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. Have a good day.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.